Kia ora and welcome to RNZ's Insight Programme. I'm Philippa Tolley. This week, sharing data with the government. New Zealand spends billions on welfare and social services every year, but how do we know it's money well spent? The national-led government has big plans to use big data to find out what works and what doesn't. But many community organisations are refusing to hand over personal client information that could help find the answer, over concerns the welfare state might be tempted to become a police state. And just a warning, some personal stories in this insight may be distressing to some listeners. The national-led government's social investment plans, which use robust research to decide which social services to fund, are well underway. And Social Investment Minister Amy Adams is excited about being able to both improve people's lives and keep more money in taxpayers' wallets. There's a recognition that while 80% of what we do in the social space works incredibly well, there is a group of New Zealanders with very complex, multifaceted needs who actually aren't terribly well served by the system of delivering social services. And if we continue to, to do what we've always done, we're going to continue to get the same results. And we have an opportunity now, based on the tremendous amount of data that we hold and the very, very clever analytical and, and actuarial models that have been built, to think quite differently about how we're reaching some of those people. But not everyone's so excited about the government digging into their data to help them deal with their personal traumas. Well, I'd like to know what they could possibly do that Women's Refuge didn't. I mean, the government has got so many other priorities where there are support services available like help and rape crisis and all of those that are actually targeted, could they not put their energy into funding those instead of me? I'm not going to trust MSD with my information. We all want to live in a country where everyone thrives, where children are healthy... The concept of social investment is an enticing one, which promises to use citizens' data smarter to get to the heart of what services they need and, importantly, to measure whether those services are actually working. The ultimate goal being to lift people out of tough times and into fulfilling lives and reduce the long-term costs. The ability to look at how services are delivered to New Zealanders across a range of agencies means those services are able to see where improvements are needed and ensure investment is made where it matters most. As this Statistics New Zealand video explains, the government already uses data it holds to try to figure out how to do this, with its huge research database known as the Integrated Data Infrastructure. Researchers who have the right approval and whose study is in the public interest can get access to the so-called IDI database, which holds over 166 billion facts on people's education, benefits, tax and health, as well as health and safety, interactions with the justice system, travel and migration. The data is gathered and all personal information removed. It's never about you as an individual, it's about us as New Zealanders. But the government wants to take that a step further. Its plan is that now the agencies outside government that it pays to provide social services hand over their clients' names, addresses, children's details and some information about what help they got. The idea is the government will be able to get closer to the story behind why things went wrong, what help was provided by what agency and whether it did any good. This means anyone from school social workers, 
Budgeting advisers to those who deal with violence or sexual abuse victims will have to share the information if they want their funding to continue. The approach all the way through is not, is this a good idea, but this is a good idea and we're going to be doing it. Until a few weeks ago, social service providers had been put on notice by the Ministry of Social Development that they would need to hand over identifying client data by the 1st of July. If they didn't, their funding would be cut. But following a near-miss privacy breach and scathing report from the Privacy Commissioner that the plans were excessive and disproportionate, that's been put on hold. Now a working group will take a closer look at how it should be collected and protected. I'm Teresa Cowie, and this insight looks at some of the promises and problems of individually targeted social investment. The Social Investment Unit in central Wellington, where the numbers are being crunched, is considered the engine room for the flow of information that it's hoped will join up the various social services people use and give more targeted help to people in need. It's also where the data exchange is being developed that will connect government agencies and the organisations that carry out social services for them. Dorothy Adams leads the team of about 35 people. We've been in operation about two years and we're set up really to advance and embed a social investment approach across the social sector. So what you had was investment approaches starting to grow up in individual agencies. So we had the welfare, social housing, justice. And what our ministers were looking for was a comprehensive and consistent approach across the whole sector. And what we're doing is building an infrastructure so tools, methods, guidance, which is what a lot of these guys do, to assist agencies to do social investment, you know, easier, cheaper, more efficiently, and coming to the data more safely and more securely. While the rest of the office is open plan, a sealed-off area holds terminals with access to the Statistics New Zealand IDI database. The room's shut off from the outside world, with a pale grey door closed with a combination lock. A notice stuck to it bears the stern warning authorised IDI users only, as well as a more light-hearted poster below warning nerds only beyond this point. And we're not allowed inside. My name's Kylie Dady and I'm the technical lead in the analytics and insights team here. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the IDI lab and it's set up in there with Statistics New Zealand data. Mm-hmm. As you can see the door is shut and it has a lock on the door. So the only people who are allowed to go in that door are the people who have been certified by Statistics New Zealand. There's no internet in there. The only access um, they have to anything is just the data sets. Mm-hmm. Um, you can analyse data at the individual level, all de-identified. But once you've finished the analysis and it comes out of the lab to share with other people, it goes through stats and they check it first mm-hmm. um, and it all comes out at an aggregate level. Mm-hmm. So people yes. outside of that room but in this building, um, they can't go in there and no. they don't see... No. The named information? No, they don't. there's no named information in there. It's all de-identified. No names, no addresses, um, just data at the individual level, but you can't identify who the people are. But so much about the success and failure of social interventions can already be gleaned from anonymised data. Why push for personal information with names attached? Dorothy Adams says social investment can only work with really good data need to understand who needs what service at what time to really make a difference. And 
that data you do need it in an identifiable form to begin with so we can link it with all the other data held by other agencies about that person so we can start to look across that person's life course, different domains and so forth. So you need to start with identifiable data. But also then, what services worked? Are the services that are, you know, are being provided by both government agencies and non-government actually working for these people? What change are we seeing in outcomes? Thousands of organisations are funded by the government to help out when they're needed. They keep hold of information they might need to help individuals in a file at their offices. Sometimes they might ask people if they can use their information to figure out how well they're doing at helping them or pass it to researchers with no identifying information for a specific research project. Brenda Pilot is the chairperson of Com Voices, a network of government-funded services that operates nationwide. Some organisations she represents are still railing against the whole concept of being forced to hand over identifiable information. She says they believe that doing that will kill the trust they've built with their clients, who are worried their personal information could fall into the wrong hands or be used against them. Government papers prepared for the Minister of Social Development that Brenda Pilot and Com Voices have obtained suggest advice from the Ministry was ignored. And I'll read it out because it's a really interesting one. There are concerns about the coercive nature of offering services only if consent to share personal data is given. There is also a risk that the mandatory requirement could impact on some customers' willingness to access services and this could further marginalise vulnerable people. That paragraph, you know, I think is a really important one because it says that officials in the department knew that there was a risk of that coercion was seen to be part of the um, process that was going to be used and that some people would not access services. These were all things that we have said. And in fact, the handwritten comment says, important to explain how this is positive for service delivery. Brenda Pilot says that approach and what appeared to be a mad rush to grab data got services and the people they help worried about how it would be used and how well it would be protected. I asked the Social Development Minister, Anne Tolley, why she ignored that advice. Well, that's someone's opinion. But, but An MSD official's opinion. Well, well that's right. That's, some, that's their opinion. That, that is someone who's written uh, something. That's their opinion. Uh, from the taxpayer's point of view, $330 million a year is a considerable investment that they are happy for their taxes to make if they know it's making a difference and that it's reaching and serving the right people. So there's nothing coercive about it. It's not just someone's opinion, though. It's MSD officials, it's the Privacy Commissioner, it's the opinion of some of the NGOs as well. Well, well, they're perfectly entitled to that. And as I've said, my only goal in this is to make sure that the right people were getting the right services at the right time and that they were making a difference. And in order to do that, we need good data. We need a good understanding of the effectiveness of that spend, the coverage of that spend. And I get lots of advice from a lot of people. In the end, I have to make the decision, and I made the decision as the minister, that we needed that information. We still, I still have that opinion. We need that information. The stalemate between the government and some of the 2,300 agency it funds to provide social services has highlighted fears that some aspects of social investment appear to delve too deeply into people's personal lives. This woman, who we'll call Helen, 
turned to Women's Refuge when she needed help to escape her abusive husband. It started off as emotional abuse overseas um, and a little bit of violence. And then when I got here, it was domestic violence in terms of um, hitting, um, sexual violence. Um, some of those things are pretty hair-raising, but since I'm anonymous. Um, sexual violence in, in terms of um, dragging me and having friends take advantage and things like that. So it's essentially rape at the time. I just didn't see it as that because it was my husband forcing me, which is rape, but within a marriage, you kind of excuse that. And then also him having other partners and wanting particularly one of them to come and live with us. Um, so really just the kind of controlling abuse that was almost sadistic. And then once I had moved out, he did come to my house once and raped me after I'd moved out. So it was a lot of that sort of abuse. And I couldn't do I couldn't scream because my kids were in the house. So that kind of control over you, that you just kind of have to say, which is the worst of the two evils, having them see their dad in that rage or just deal with it. For Helen, the stigma of being an abused woman was a huge burden. She was too terrified to admit to herself what was going on, let alone contemplate others finding out and judging her. Helen's adamant she wouldn't have taken what turned out to be Women's Refuge's life-changing help if she knew parts of her file were being shipped off to a government database. There's absolutely no way that myself in a vulnerable situation like that would have had the trust in the agency that was supporting me. I would never have done that. I was resistant even going for help in the first place because of the stigma. What, what would be your main concerns around MSD having that information though? Well, the fact that, well, first of all, I don't understand why they need my personal details when Women's Refuge is able to supply them with all the data that they need. So they're saying they want to understand what the agencies are providing and what women or people in those situations, what support they're accessing and all that. There's no need for my personal details. And my concern about that is that not just the stigma of my colleagues knowing it could affect my job, it could affect the way people perceive me. Just knowing from myself that before I was in the situation, I kind of perceived um, people that were needing support services, I, I didn't really see them as people like me, which is a terrible thing to admit. Somebody that was um, seemingly self-sufficient and independent, and to me that was a failure in my own life, and I had to go through a lot of counselling to actually accept that I hadn't failed. Um, so it would have been embarrassing for me, it might have affected my career, people might have seen me as needing extra support, not being able to cope or whatever, as awful as that sounds. Um, that is something that I w would have worried about. But more than that, the fact that my partner might have had access somehow to my address, my children's information, that's just dangerous. And services that deal with the perpetrators of sexual violence are worried too. Here at Wellstop, a community-based organisation that treats teens and children who have engaged in harmful or abusive sexual behaviour, or adults who have sexually abused children, every effort is made to keep a visit to their offices low-key and private. It's off the main street and there's no signage that could give away why someone might come here. 
When I head upstairs to reception, I have to wait outside until a staff member gives me the all clear that there are no clients in the waiting room. They don't want me to see any of their clients in case I know them, and they don't want to spook their clients by having a journalist poking around. In a place where some people come to get help for one of society's most hated and shameful crimes, privacy is a big deal. Okay, so just down this corridor here is our group therapy room, and we use this room for meetings and group therapy. So typically in this room you'd have on a on a week, night, evening, we'd have a group of about eight to ten men uh, and two facilitators. But one of Wellstop's therapists, Alex Ness, believes that's all for nothing if his first conversation with a client has to start with the question, do you consent to having your details and treatment transferred to a government database? And that's if the clients even get that far. It's been said that you know, 30% of a positive outcome with a client that we work with comes from a therapeutic relationship that you have with that client. So you develop some, some trust and some understanding of the person, demonstrate things like flexibility and warmth and empathy for their situation, asking them for information that doesn't seem relevant or putting pressure on them to provide things like identification so that they go on the face of that and they, they put that relationship at risk. So in terms of everything we do here, we do to ensure the best possible outcome, which is no more harmful sexual behaviour, but also that your needs and you know are responded to. Um, that, that's a really important message that we have for our clients. That's, that's the cup of tea in the waiting room through to the way that we speak with them about the behaviour they've done, asking for, for information that would potentially be um, not relevant to the work or asking them to prove things to us, um, I don't think necessarily would be that beneficial. Could that really blow everything that you're trying to achieve there? Potentially from, from not turning up because don't enjoy the therapeutic relationship that they've developed with the person or, or perhaps you're yeah, feeling like that. They do what probably they've done in other aspects of their lives, which is walk away, avoid, isolate, um, rather than be engaged and get help. Wellstop's chief executive, Leslie Ayland, wants organisations like the one she leads to be permanently exempt from having to hand over its clients' identifiable data. The organisation already allows researchers to use its anonymised data if they have clear and ethical purposes, but she says so far the government hasn't given any specifics on what it would do with the information. If they're asking name, address, date of birth and the service you've received then that's acting like an informal sex offender register and with no security other than what's afforded to other organisations and you don't come off that list. And there might be benign intent at this stage, but my worry is what if there's a privacy breach and a list of people who've attended Wellstop gets out into the community and there starts to be you know, targeting of people, vigilante action and that kind of thing, or what if a future government doesn't have benign intent and, you know, they go out and round up lists of people and target them, and also the families, Um, because we have contracts for supporting families. So, again, you might have a partner of someone who's come here, and they too would be on a list and possibly assumed to have harmed someone when, in fact, they haven't. So... It's very worrying what could happen to data and no system is um, secure and we worry about our own systems and do everything we can to maintain privacy.
um, you're talking there about potential breaches or um, just intents of, of future governments. Mm. But we've actually even seen, um, you know, in this recent government, Paula Bennett, the former Minister of Social Development, actually using the data of beneficiaries, making it public. All of these things can act as a barrier to people coming forward to get help. There's enough, there's already enough barriers. Um, this is one more. And I think, you know, what if someone doesn't get that help because of that barrier and goes on to harm someone else? So what sort of guarantee can the Social Development Minister and Tolly give that people's information wouldn't be exposed by the government? Well, under the privacy laws, you can only use the data for the purposes which you've collected it for. I mean, there is a consent process. So people consent to give their data across into a system. Um, they have to, they can only ever be used for that purpose. So the fear that it would be used by work and income to, you know, to determine income levels, etc., um, whether they were cheating on the benefit or whatever, those are, um, are groundless fears. And if people don't follow the law, how do you stop them snooping? Danny Mullen is in charge of building the Social Investment Unit's data exchange, which will share data between government agencies and contracted NGOs. This is his take. If information is provided for a particular purpose, it would be very convenient if that purpose accompanied the data, and it's one of the things that the data exchange actually does. It allows you to record the specific purpose for which the information was provided and literally put it next to that row of data so that the organisation receiving it um, can keep a track of why the information was provided in the first place. Now, that doesn't absolutely guarantee that people won't use it for the wrong reasons, but transparency is a pretty powerful tool and it's something that's um, strongly supported by the Privacy Commissioner, we believe. The Privacy Commissioner himself, John Edwards, stresses anyone viewing identifiable data will have to have a strong case for doing so. What we encourage departments and businesses to do when they are doing something new with data, like the um, individual client level proposal, is to have a really good process of privacy impact assessment. And that means getting that understanding in a really methodical way and tracking end-to-end -end the life cycle of the information. What you're going to collect, what you need each bit for, who's going to see it, uh, what you're going to do with it when you don't need it anymore, that kind of thing, and how you're going to keep it safe. But the Social Investment Unit's Dorothy Adams is under no illusion that the constant worry over security will ever be completely eliminated. Privacy breaches do occur and it's not to say that at some point on the data exchange there'll be a privacy breach. And I think we've got quite a risk mitigation strategy around that data exchange. So it's really thinking about if it were to occur, and let's hope like hell it never does, but if it were to occur, what is the risk mitigations that we've got in place? That's different to information getting in the hands of the wrong person uh, for, you know, intentionally. But all the risk mitigation that we've done around what if a breach were to occur? Because if you think you've got a lot more information that's going to be flowing around the system more safely, more securely, but... A privacy breach could occur. I think we always need to be honest about that. And if the possibility of being exposed or embarrassed really does put people off being truthful with those helping them, or even coming to get help in the first place, how helpful is that to Dorothy Adams and her team who are trying to figure out which services work and which don't? 
it's not helpful. Um, it's not helpful for anyone. It's not helpful for the client because they're either, as you say, under those conditions might not get the service or they might not get the, the right service for them if the person they're working with hasn't got the best information about them. And it's, it's not good for our analytics. We need good quality data. Like it or not, the move towards using big data to solve the world's ills appears to be an unstoppable one. The former Auckland City Missioner, Dame Diane Robertson, is leading the charge to try to create trust over data use. She's the chairperson of the Data Futures Partnership, an independent body set up by the government. The partnership was set up to look at um, safe use of data and more effective use of data across the whole ecosystem. Um, so we're looking at data, government data, business data, not-for-profit data, so you know all of New Zealand's data. And we have been asked to do a number of tasks. One is to diagnose and fix issues that are in the system, to set up some catalyst projects so that um, people can use real data and have to solve real-world problems, to get businesses and not-for-profits and businesses and government to start sharing data. And we have been, our, our big piece of work at the moment is around social licence. Dame Diane says the idea of a social contract or social licence has to come into play. But what is social licence? The Oxford English Dictionary describes it as an implicit agreement between the members of a society to cooperate for social benefits, for example, by sacrificing some individual freedom for state protection. So how much of our personal data should we be willing to give up in exchange for social services? People are really happy for that to happen as long as a number of things happen. And the first one is that very clearly we talk about the purpose. So why are we collecting this data? What are we going to use it for? So in the case of the homeless, we're collecting it so that we can actually make sure that people are transitioning through to other housing. The second thing is they want to know about value. What's the value we're going to get out of this? And that's not just value for MSD, but it's value for the client as well. Will I get a house quicker? Will I be put onto the New Zealand you know, housing register? Will I be able to move out of this emergency accommodation quicker? What's the value for me? Then there's a number of things that people need to know before they're happy. And one of them is, is my data secure? And when this happens and it's not secure, then there is a breach of trust as well as a breach of an IT system. And people start to get nervous and they say, I don't want to give my data because I know that they haven't kept it securely. And every time we have a breach, whether it's ACC or the MSD kiosk, that trust level drops. A working group is being set up to try and build bridges between the government and the services who hold the client's data they're wanting to harness. It's expected it will have a plan in place by early next year. But does Dorothy Adams think that ultimately some organisations that hold highly sensitive data could be excluded? We don't know. We're going to have to work through this process. I strongly suspect not. We work with a small but fairly significant group of NGOs and they tell us very reliably that under the right conditions that 90%, 97% of their clients will share their information under the right conditions and that's what we've got to understand. What are those right conditions? Surely there would be some clients or some organisations where it just, it would be too damaging to the trust relationship to hand over name data. Perhaps. Perhaps, and I think we're going to have to understand that. We might end up in that place for some things, but we don't know yet. For sexual violence survivor Helen, the answer is clear. 
I, I just needed to be able to trust the people that were giving me support and um, be able to be completely honest and vulnerable with them. And I need to be able to share my personal story when it's appropriate for me. It's my story, it's not the government's story. I'm Teresa Cowie and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on this programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insightrnz. That programme was written and presented by Teresa Cowie. It was produced by me, Philippa Tolley, with technical production by William Saunders. It's been great having you with us, and if you'd like to explore other programmes, head to iTunes or your Android provider, or visit us at rnz.co.nz. Thanks for listening.